So this morning we'll continue through an Orthodox Catechism, uh, chapter 3, the second part. Now we've been talking about uh, God the Father, um, and we've transitioned to God the Son. And so we want to think about man's redemption specifically in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, God the Son. So we're looking at questions 34 and 35 this morning. So let's just jump right into it and look at uh, question 34. Let me have someone read uh, question 34 and then someone else read the answer to that question in Orthodox Catechism. Go for it. Thank you. What do you believe when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? you can read the answer. That the Son of God. That's right. That's good. Yep. That the Son of God who is and continues true and everlasting God, took the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, through the working of the Holy Spirit, that he might be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. Okay. So uh, if you've been in this class for a while, you've been walking with us, we've been walking together through an Orthodox catechism, and we understand that the catechism was, uh, was written, the, an, an orthodox catechism being the Baptistic version of the Heidelberg uh, catechism, broken up into sort of three sections, right? So what are the three sections? We should know these by heart by now, for those who've been in the class. Three sections, what's the first? Just call it out. Misery. Misery. Second. Redemption. Redemption. Third. Gratitude. Gratitude or thankfulness, right? Misery, redemption, gratitude, or thankfulness. So as we deal with part three here of man's redemption, we're dealing with, we've seen that we are uh, by nature uh, sinful, uh, being of Adam's uh, posterity. We have uh, inherited Adam's uh, guilt, his, his shame. And so there is need for uh, redemption. There's need for salvation from this guilt, this shame, this condemnation that we all have because we are in Adam. And so the second part of the catechism focuses on how are we redeemed? How are we saved? Um, how are we freed from uh, our enslavement to sin? And the answer is in our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is why the second part of the catechism deals with each person of the Trinity. Because uh, our, our, our salvation is Trinitarian. But this morning we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, who is both truly God and truly man. So question 34 here follows the line of the Apostles' Creed, which we looked at a few weeks ago. The third or fourth line of that creed affirms that we believe in Jesus Christ his, as God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived um, by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, last week, Kyle talked about Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. Does anyone remember maybe one of the distinctions between uh, Jesus as the only begotten Son of God and how the Bible calls all of us sons of God, children of God? What is, what's, what's maybe one distinction there? Yeah, Jesus uh, is eternally begotten, and uh, we, we talked about that a bit. 
We are, we are adopted children of God by virtue of our union with Christ, the Son, but Jesus is the eternally begotten of God, of his Father. Um, the Bible says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, Romans 8, 14. We are adopted as sons through the eternally begotten Son of God, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, Galatians 3, 26. So when we read these verses, it really, it, it, it points to the um, efficacy of uh, Christ's atonement and his sacrifice and his life of uh, perfect obedience that we might be called sons of God. So we're not uh, stepchildren. We're not, not invited into the family, but sort of left in the basement or left in the back room but we are brought to the table uh, along with Christ and we dine with him, which is what the Lord's Supper is a picture of. All these things, it, it really, it gives confidence to the Christian that we are indeed children of God and all points to the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness on our behalf. A couple of weeks ago, Arnie also talked about the, the mystery of the Son of God. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. Now, uh, another way to say that is there was never a time where uh, Jesus wasn't the Son of God, right? Um, yet he is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. He has the same divine essence as the Spirit and the Father because he is God. So the Son of God is and continues that line in the um, answer to the, the catechism there. Uh, is and continues true and everlasting God. Let me have someone read John 20, verse 28 for us. John 20, 28. I think that's in your handout. Yep, yep? okay. Who can read that for us? Thank you. Yeah, you got it. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, the title John uses here for Lord is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament for the divine covenant name Yahweh. And then he uh, simply and clearly calls Jesus God. Now, if Jesus were not God, just think about the context of John 20, 28 here. If Jesus were not God and accepted uh, this worship from Thomas to call him my Lord and my God, then he would be condoning idol worship, right? Remember how the angels responded to John when he started to worship them? What did, what did they say? How, how, how did they respond? Right? They, they rejected it and said, you must not do this. Right? He fell down at his feet to worship, and they said, you must not do this. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, the angels say. But Jesus appropriately receives worship from Thomas and calling him my Lord and my God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of uh, prophecy, it says in Revelation 19.10. 
So Jesus accepts Thomas' worship in John, John 20. He doesn't reject it because it is completely appropriate that he accepts it. Uh, Philippians 2.10 says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, a, a, a bent knee or bowed knee in scripture is associated with uh, submission, uh, subjection, honor, worship, authority. But this is not sort of the standalone declaration that we see in Philippians. Paul is using a declaration from the Old Testament that Isaiah uses to refer to the righteous God and Savior, Yahweh. Again, so it's not uncommon in the Bible to see uh, a writer in the New Testament pulling uh, language from the Old Testament, which is in the Old Testament applied to Yahweh and the New Testament applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's it's clear. It's intentional. The spirit is interpreting Old Testament for us and the New Testament and essentially saying Jesus is God. And so we see the same thing in Philippians 2.10, along with Isaiah 45. So thinking about that language in Philippians 2.10, uh, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Let me have someone read Isaiah 45, verses 23 to 25. Yes, go ahead. Thank you. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Again, we see this this connection between these two, these Old and New Testament language is using the same language to communicate to us really a, a fulfillment of prophecy and the Lord's salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ, and that Jesus has all authority. He is the righteous one. He is the holy one. He is uh, the deliverer. He is God. Jesus is the promised and prophesied Savior. He is the salvation that God promised in the Old Covenant. So both John 20, verses 28, and Philippians 2.10 recognize Jesus' divine glory. And then listen to this clear language in uh, 1 John 5.10. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is the truth of God. Uh, The truth of God is eternal life. Jesus is able even to give eternal life to whomever he wills because he is God. Uh, John Gill, in thinking over this, this topic, says... Christ is truly and really God, as appears from all the perfections of deity, the fullness of the Godhead being in him from the divine works of creation, which we talked about a few weeks ago in Providence, being ascribed to him and from the divine worship that is given him from creation, uh, Providence, uh, the Lord upholding the universe by the word of his power and even to him receiving worship. We are uh, commanded to give worship to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
our, our triune God. So when we think about that even, I mean, we, we think about giving worship to the Father, and uh, that, that's like, okay, we understand that. We think about giving worship to Jesus. Yes, that's right. That's what we do. We sing praise. We think about giving worship to the Holy Spirit. And there's almost like our, 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 our meter goes down a bit. And say, that, that, that's right. You know, but no, our God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit receive all glory and honor and worship. Uh, we do not have salvation unless our God is uh, Trinitarian and our salvation is indeed Trinitarian. But God, the second person of the Trinity, took the very nature of man of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. Now, what's another way, uh, a common term, might be common to some of you, when we think about Jesus being truly God and truly man? What's a, a word or maybe a phrase that you've commonly heard? Commonly heard? Yeah. Or maybe not, okay. not commonly. <laughs> I, I, I read your mind. <laughs> Hypostatic union. Sorry. Yes, thank you. The hypostatic union. Uh, language uh, developed within the church to um, summarize in a, in a pithy way that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Now, again, uh, as we looked at when, uh, when Arnie talked about this and Kyle as well, we're talking about things that are mysterious. Uh, we don't, you're not going to leave this Sunday school and it's going to be absolutely clear how Jesus is truly God and truly man. You believe that he is, which you should, and that's a true faith, but the how, we, we don't fully understand that. We're talking about God here. So uh, enjoy the mystery. <laughs> sort of uh, worship God in the mystery. That's, that's okay. That's, that, that's good. Um, now, as the early church uh, defended the divine nature of the second person of the Trinity, they tried to explain the person of Christ very carefully. That's, that, that's the best we can do as, as Christians. We tried to explain it carefully. Um, they said, he is God, begotten before all worlds, before or rather from the being of the father, and he is man, born in the world from the being of his mother existing fully as God and fully as man with a rational soul and human body, equal to the Father in divinity, subordinate to the Father in humanity. Although he is God and man, Christ is not uh, divided, but he is one Christ, the person of Christ. Uh, we understand from scripture that Jesus is truly God and truly man, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So for the larger portion of this class, we'll be talking about um, the Immaculate Conception, uh, the virgin birth, the, the Lord Jesus born through the womb of, of the Virgin. Okay, let's go to the Old Testament first. Isaiah 9, 6, um, and maybe these are common passages. Isaiah 9, 6 and Isaiah 7, 14. Who wants to read Isaiah 9, 6 for us? Okay, and then Isaiah 7, 14. All right. Okay, go ahead. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, thank you. 
Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay. <clears throat> Anybody know what Emmanuel means? God with us. We'll come back to that. Um, so first, this word virgin was a word used to refer to a young woman who was of age to be married. So she was uh, marriageable, you can put it that way. The New King James says a virgin. Most of your translations probably say the virgin or the virgin. The New Testament sees the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14 in the Virgin Mary. Now, this isn't, again, by chance. Uh, verses like Matthew 1:23 is one of the many verses that show us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Um, do you guys have Matthew 1, 18 or 23 in your notes? Okay. Can somebody read that for us? Okay, thank you. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Thank you. So we don't have to guess here. We can look at Isaiah 7, 15, and look at Matthew 1, and the Holy Spirit again is giving the divine interpretation on what we see in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is as a, a virgin giving birth <laughs> is... Uh, there's nothing like this. There, there are writings in different sort of religions and uh, mythology, but they recognize them as, as exactly copycats, uh, folklore. Uh, but the scriptures uh, show us the clear and true testimony. But this is as mysterious. I think about the, uh, the sermon series as God telling, you know, Hosea, go marry Gomer. Uh, the Lord, well, we don't know the mind of God, but he does. It's not uncommon to see these things like this in scripture. And it does, it leaves us sort of scratching our head, uh, but we also have to come to the truth of what the word, word says. A virgin gave birth, right? Uh, an orthodox, actually, let me go back up. John 1.14, I'm gonna read that first. Uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Jesus, uh, born of a virgin and at the same time, the son of the father here in John 1, 14, speaking of God, the father. This is the mystery of Christ. An Orthodox catechism, again, I mentioned it's the Baptist, Baptistic version of the Heidelberg catechism with some changes to show their Baptistic convictions. Both of these catechisms are summarized versions of their bigger brother. Uh, so the Heidelberg catechism, I'll call it as a bigger brother. What's, what's the bigger brother? Westminster Confession of Faith. An Orthodox Catechism has a bigger brother. It's our second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter eight and both of these confessions deal with Christ the mediator. The Westminster Confession says, the Son of God being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary 
of her substance. Now, the second London Baptist Confession says something very similar. It says this, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, instead of saying of her substance, they wanted to make a distinction, right? So they leave out of her substance, but they give a a, a longer explanation. And it says this, the Holy Spirit came down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed, overshadowed her. Thus, he was born of the womb of the woman of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the scriptures. So they say all of that in the place of of her substance. <laughs> they were trying to uh, communicate and articulate something. And I'm going to talk about this in a bit to show some of the distinctions, uh, because there was context around both of these confessions, which we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. Go ahead. Uh, I, I have a um, difference with both of them. Because um, John 1.14 in the Greek is referring to a, a Hebrew uh, festival called the Feast of Booze. Okay. The word there is he tabernacled among us. He added a body to himself. He didn't become human. That's a very big distinction. Yeah. He yeah. didn't stop being God to become human. Right, exactly. His, yep. his God did not die on the cross. Right. He added a human body to himself. Yep. So there's, there's a reason for distinction. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Um, and I think... The, the confessions and the, uh, the catechisms draw that out. They wouldn't say that he stopped being God when he took upon human nature, but that he remained truly God and truly man, uh, divine and human. So, yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so let's, let's look at some of this language of her substance versus what our Baptistic forefathers laid out. Um, so your sign is both. Uh, the the uh, drawer of the Heidelberg... Um, Uh, confession or catechism he says uh, uh, the exposition of this question was necessary on account of those who have denied that the flesh of christ was taken from the substance of the virgin Uh, the eutychians argue that christ was conceived by the holy spirit therefore the flesh of christ was produced by the substance of the divinity or from the essence of the Holy Ghost, and by that means the divine nature was changed, important, into the human. Now, a lot of technical language there, but that language of her substance was um, added or used in the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith because the context of that was arguing against heresies that denied the true humanity of Christ or the true divinity of Christ. They didn't see this as theological nitpicking. If Jesus was not truly man, but just appeared to be man, then he could not obey in true man's place or atone for true man's sin. So the defense of uh, the person of Christ and his divine and human nature, it's not just sort of lofty theological, it is, but it concerns our very redemption. Uh, He must be truly God and he must be truly man in order for us to be truly saved. Um, It was by the operation of the Holy Ghost that the Son of God was conceived in the womb of the Virgin, yet he was truly man. The second person of the Trinity took on all of man's weaknesses and infirmities like hunger, thirst, 
being sleepy and tired. We know God doesn't sleep. The scripture says God neither sleeps nor slumbers. Yet Christ, he slept. He, he went to bed. <laughs> um, so there was a, a need to uphold the, the, uh, the person of Christ and his two natures. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith are trying to clarify what they believe by arguing against false teachings that deny Christ's true humanity. Um, again, that's why the confession says, of her substance. Now, what I thought was interesting is that the Second London Baptist Confession, again, leaves out those words. And uh, James Renahan has done a lot of helpful writing on the confession and its context. And this is what he says. Um, he explains uh, why the words of her substance were left out of the, the catechism. He said, the leaving out of those words was likely to show that we were not in agreement with certain accepted beliefs held by General Baptists. He says, there was a significant Christological error present among contemporary General Baptists, often called the Hoffmanite Christology. The Hoffmanite Christology argued that Christ did not take his humanity from Mary, but that Jesus brought celestial flesh from heaven to earth, like a pearl from heavenly dew in a shell, is sort of how they, they worded. From this perspective, Mary was simply the conduit through which the celestial flesh of Jesus came to earth. This became a major problem among English General Baptists as it was championed by an important leader among them. Now, let's think about that. What's the problem with saying Jesus brought from heaven a sort of uh, uh, a heavenly glorified flesh and that Mary was just sort of the conduit, the vessel through which he was born. What's the problem with that? He wouldn't truly be man. He wouldn't truly be man, right? And Isaiah notes that he was not comely. Yeah. He didn't have this perfect flesh. Yeah, yeah, right? So uh, he wasn't someone that if he walked by, you would say, oh, man, look how beautiful he is, right? Um, what else? All the prophecies that said he would be from the family of Judah. Yeah. Yes, we're going to come to that. Yes, great point. Yep, Kyle? Yeah, it's, it's ascribing to God things that belong to Jesus. Yeah, it's confusing, yep, confusing the categories, right. So, like, in this language, you know, we can read some of these things, and it's like, well, what are they saying? But and I, I get that, too, because I, I feel that sometimes, too. But the why they're saying it is really important. That They're trying to be uh, careful. There's context here. So they're trying to address certain heresies by wording it in a certain way. And so we have to keep that in mind as well. Sometimes reading through, um, you know, some of these older writings and particular Baptist writings from the 17th century, it's like, well, why, why are we doing this? But it's actually helpful. And it's more helpful when we understand the context, but it wasn't for, for nothing. They were trying to sort of set a foundation that would defend uh, the nature of Christ, the divine nature, his human nature against, against heresies. Um, so I, I just found that really interesting in my studying through this. So again, the Westminster Confession uses of her substance to argue against the teaching that denied Christ's true human nature. The Second London Baptist takes off the words of her substance to essentially argue against the same sort of false teaching within their context. Both felt that the language they used 
was best to distinguish them from those false teachings in their context. But if you were wondering why that language was there or not there, that's why. Maybe you had no idea and didn't really care, but I told you because I thought it's interesting. <laughs> Both are arguing essentially against the same heresy. Okay, so Jesus had to be miraculously conceived and preserved from the sinful nature in order that he might be pure sacrifice, a pure sacrifice for sinners, but he also had to be perfect so that he could also, by his purity, sanctify others. Jesus' pure nature also does something for our faith. His pure nature means that we can trust whatever the Son says is true. In other words, he cannot lie. So even the, the purity of his nature even gets at our belief in what he says. Um, if he were not pure and he were tainted by sin, then how do we believe his word? How do we know that everything he says is true? Uh, so even when you think about Christ's uh, nature, think about that as well. Our faith is grounded in the pure nature of Christ. His uh, purity is connected to his integrity. We can word it that way. Uh, to say that Jesus was of the flesh and born of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit is the same as to say that he is the true seed of David of the line of Judah. These two statements are connected in Luke 1. Now let me have someone read Luke chapter 1 verses 26 through 27. Who wants to read that for us? Okay. So again, we see in that verse a clear uh, interpretation of the Old Testament and fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, John Piper, <clears throat> I found this in a sermon he preached in 1984, this is before I was born. <laughs> uh, but it was good. This is what he said. Um, it was still important that Joseph be of the house of David because the legal relationship he had to Jesus put Jesus in the Davidic line and enabled him to fulfill the promises made to the son of David. So the Holy Spirit's fulfillment um, of Old Testament prophecies through the virgin birth, uh, he does this while providentially preserving the line through which the Messiah would come, the line of David. Uh, James Renahan writes, According to his human nature, Jesus was the true descendant of Abraham and David, thus the heir of the prophecies, promises, and especially covenants made with them. So all of what was promised in the Old Testament to the people of Israel ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ. So you think about um, 2 Samuel uh, 7, 15 through 18, where there's this, uh, this promise of a king to sit on the throne of, of David. And this sort of, well, who is this one who's going to sit, sit on this throne? Um, is it someone of, uh, uh, is it someone the next generation or the next couple of generations? Or is it someone greater than that? Um, you know what? Let's let's go there quick. I think I have time. Let's just go there. Um, first or second Samuel seven. Uh, turn to uh, verse thirteen, and then we'll read down through verse seventeen. So second Samuel seven thirteen to seventeen. 
Who wants to read that for us? Second Samuel 13? Seven. Seven. 13 to 17. Who's got that? I got it. Okay, go for it. Thank you. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. Okay, so there's a promise to David of this one who will sit on the throne. Scripture says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. At the same time, it says, your throne shall be established forever. So the question becomes, well, who's, who's he talking about? Is it Solomon or is it someone else? Uh, again, in the New Testament, we see the divine interpretation of this. In Luke 1, verses 31 to 33, it says, And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of God, the, the Son of the Most High, rather, And the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom of his kingdom. There will be no end. So Jesus is the one whose kingdom will last eternally. Yet scripture says of this king, when he was uh, when he commits iniquity, he will be disciplined. We know Jesus never committed iniquity, so he doesn't fit that description. We know Solomon did did commit iniquity, but he died, so he doesn't fit the description of the one who sits on the throne forever. It's not uncommon to see in Scripture these um, a a partial fulfillment of uh, a promise that's given in the Old Testament. So we see its partial realization in one area, but we see its fulfillment in another area, always culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's only one place where you see that where scripture gives us clear indication. Uh, that wasn't in my notes, but I wanted to read it because I thought it was helpful. Um, <laughs> okay, 10 minutes, I think. Right, Kyle? Am, am I good on time? 10, 10. 10, 10. okay. <laughs> Six minutes. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, Romans 1, 3. It says, concerning the son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Again, scripture testifying to that. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 8. Remember Jesus Christ from arisen from the dead, the offspring of David, who preached uh, in my gospel, who I preached in my gospel. And then Galatians 3, 13 to 16. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. For that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
Um, so yes, Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. The second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten of the Father, takes to himself a human nature, assumes a human nature in order to redeem human nature, all those who believe upon the Son. Um, <clears throat> okay, so this leads us right into question 35, which I'll just sort of go through probably quickly here, but um, let me have someone read the question and then someone else read the answer in question 35 there and an orthodox catechism. Answer. He is our mediator and does cover with his innocence and perfect holiness my sins in which I was conceived that they may not come in the sight of God. Okay, man. (laughs) That they might not come in the sight of God. Christ's human nature and divine nature was of necessity to glorify God, our triune God, but also that I will not have to stand before God on my own and fear that my sin will keep me from the presence of God or fear that what I said, what I did, what I thought, how I felt, uh, none of these things will keep the believer from the sight of God. But because of Christ and because he took upon himself a human nature, they can stand before God, as Jude says, a spotless and blameless before his glory. Christ will present them with great joy. Christ's joy in presenting us, which he will do spotless and blameless, ought to encourage our joy even now. Thank God we don't have to stand before God with our sin. Article 18 of the Incarnation of the Belgic Confession says this, and Christ not only assumed human nature as far as a body is concerned, but also a real human soul in order to be a real human being. For since the soul has been lost as well as the body, Christ had to assume them both to save them both together. Hebrews 2 17. Let me have someone read Hebrews 2.17 and then someone else Hebrews 4.15. Who wants Hebrews 2.17? All right. Mark and then 4.15. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Matthew 3.15. But Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew uh, 3.17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was well-pleasing to the Father because I am not always well-pleasing to the Father. Because you are not always well-pleasing to the Father, but because you are in Christ, uh, even us, uh, we, we can be seen in him and seen and called saints 
by the writers of the, the New Testament, called holy, called beloved by God. Uh, Psalm 32, one says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Um, we are not sinless uh, by, by nature. We are sinful, but our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, who had to take to himself human nature, including a soul and body and blood in order to cover our sinfulness. This drawing from the garden of, of Eden, where Adam and Eve, our first, our, our, our first parents, sinned against a holy God uh, and needed a covering. Uh, they, there was a covering provided for them, which pointed to, I think we can say, uh, something dying in order for the skins of that dead animal to cover Adam and Eve. We see this ultimately being fulfilled by Christ, the Lamb of God, the Bible calls him, who is the covering for the redeemed sinner. We need his righteousness. We needed the second person of the Trinity to take upon himself human nature in order to redeem all that we are. Our bodies, our minds, our souls, our affections are even being redeemed. And we get a foretaste of it now when we can say no to sin and turn away from it by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are experiencing the new birth. (laughs) And the fulfillment of that will be when we never have to struggle with sin again. Thanks be to God for that. We're going to sing doxology because my heart needs it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray.